are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Uh, Stand with me this morning and open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. This is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. That's Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, we have some right for you in the pew backs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. You can take that home uh, with you. So my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Would you hear the word of the Lord through his servant, Paul? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Renaissance Church, this is the word of the Lord. So this morning, we get to dive a little bit deeper into the introductory part of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. You know, it's, it's kind of intriguing, is it not, that we get to go through somebody else's mail? Right? It's a, it's a peculiar thing uh, that we get to sift through multiple churches' mailbag thousands of years later. I mean, if this were to happen today it'd be considered a federal offense, landing you five years in prison with a $250,000 fine. Yes, I looked it up, uh, what it would cost us if we were to tamper with somebody else's mail. But this is what we get to do because the vast majority of the New Testament is a bunch of letters from Christians to churches. That's what we get to consider now as the Word of God. You know what this means? Just what this means for us as we look at this letter is that before this letter can mean anything to us, we must first understand what it means to them. Do you you see that? That we will never plumb the depths of the treasures that is this word unless it's first grounded in what is going on in this particular church, in this particular place called Ephesus. And so while last week we did some background work on how this church got planted in uh, Acts 19 and Acts 20, we looked a little bit more about uh, the church of Ephesus' story, even uh, going on the way to Revelation chapter 2. So we did that background work. But today what I, I want to look at a little bit more is, is to see who this is from and who this is for. So first point, who this is from, and second point, who this is for. And what I'm convinced that Paul wants us to be awakened to this morning is that this grace and peace he sends is not just this mere theoretical idea. 
No, this grace and peace that he sends is grace and peace in a community that is marked by grace and marked by peace. He sends grace and peace so that we would be a community of grace and peace. So if you're ready to dive in, I want to encourage you to keep those Bibles open to those first two verses of this letter, and we'll look at this first point. First point, who it's from. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So who do we see this is from? Help me out. Paul, that's right. And then if you fast forward a little bit through this letter, you'll see where he's writing this letter from, Ephesians 4.1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, someone can be an apostle of Christ Jesus in two different ways. The first way is a general way. Generally speaking, apostle means sent one or a messenger, kind of like what we did with Travis to North Africa. We sent him with the gospel. It's a little a apostle. That's an apostle in a general way. Paul writes about these types of apostles in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, And Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's general apostles. But then you have special apostles. This is capital A apostles that don't exist anymore today, but there was the select few back in the early church. Paul is one of these capital A apostles. So what did it mean to be a capital A apostle in the early church? You had to meet two qualifications. The first qualification is you had to seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the qualifications to replace Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1, verse 22. In order to replace one of the apostles, he had to see the risen Lord. Paul even says this about himself in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Then he, that is Jesus, appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I love Paul's description for himself. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So one of the first qualifications to be an apostle is you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But the second qualification is you had to be appointed by Christ himself, which most of the disciples were at the end of Matthew 28. But so was the Apostle Paul. Look what we read about his conversion in Acts 9.15. It says, But the Lord, that is Jesus, said to him, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, typically, when we want to gain credibility with a crowd, when you want to gain credibility, whether it's in a job interview or on a dating app, what do you normally do? You talk about how great you are. 
Right? You talk about all the work that you have done. You talk about the schools you went to, your interests, all of your accomplishments, the companies that you've worked for. You talk about everything that you do and what you have willed into existence. That's how you show off your credibility to others. But not the Apostle Paul. The only time the Apostle Paul ever boasts about himself is when he boasts not in his strengths, but in his weaknesses. The only time Paul has ever talked about what he's accomplished or excelled at, he says, I am the chief of all saints. No, sinners. See, Paul's qualifications and credibility is not because of what Paul has done or willed. It's by the will of God, he says. Paul's credentials do not come from within himself, but outside of himself. Paul wasn't appointed to this role because of how great he was, but solely because of how great God is and how great his grace is in his life. Do you see what Paul's saying? I did not write my own script. I am not the author of my story, but I've met the author of my story, and his name is Jesus. It's Jesus who has willed this life for the Apostle Paul. And this is what happens when your life gets flipped upside down by the grace of God. I mean, think about it. Paul, who once killed Christians, that because he met grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is now willing to be killed for being a Christian. The Apostle Paul, who once tried to break down and beat up the church, is now writing letters to build up the church in Christ. This Paul, who was once a rabbi, an apostle, if you will, a messenger, if you will, for the law of God, is now an apostle for Christ Jesus, the grace of God. See, Paul once thought that the law could heal what the law revealed. But he later found out that the law that he was a teacher of was just like an x-ray machine. <laughs> it only revealed what was wrong. You know, a couple years ago when uh, Lauren was pretty far along in her uh, pregnancy with our th third child, Miles, she started experiencing all this pain in her chest and in her shoulders. So we had to rush her to the emergency room. And the doctors ran a bunch of these tests uh, that were, uh, quote, safe, unquote, for those who were nine months pregnant. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so they had to run a very risky x-ray on her body. And there we found out that Lauren had a terrible case of pneumonia. Yes, my wife gave birth to our third child with pneumonia. She's a champ. I cry when I get a cough. She gives birth when she gets pneumonia. See, what did that x-ray do? It revealed what was wrong with my wife. But you know what the medical team did not suggest? That we go back to the x-ray machine to heal the problem. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul thought would work for his life. This is what we often think will work for our lives. That if we return to the law, we can fix our problems. If we can return to working for our righteousness and our standing before God, we could heal the problem. But what's crystal clear is what the law reveals, the law can never heal. Because what the law reveals, the Apostle Paul says, is that we are dead in our sins. Dead. Can a dead person heal themselves? No. Look what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 7 when he was awakened to this reality. For sin, Romans 7, 11, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. The law works, good works, cannot save you. But Paul found out there is someone who can heal what the law revealed. It's Jesus and his grace where he met Jesus on the road to Damascus where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, not only knocked Paul off of a literal high horse but his prideful high horse thinking that it's works that can save him. But Paul knows now after meeting this Jesus it's not by works we are saved. Amen? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is Paul's story. And if you've been changed by the grace of God, this is your story. This is the will of God for your life. That much like Paul didn't write his own script, we do not write our own script. Much like Paul didn't will his life into existence, we don't will our life into existence. And so now, like the Apostle Paul, we say we might not be big A apostles, but we are messengers of this good news, not by our own will, but by God's will. And what is God's will? God's will is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 God's will is perfect, pleasing, and good. Romans 12, 1 through 2. See, God's will, church, hear me, is not something that is hidden that you have to find. It's not this divine hide and seek. God's will has already been revealed. And where is his will revealed? His word. Look what Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, says. If you want to know the will of God and find it, you must not seek for it on the basis of your own ideas. You must hear his, what is it? Word as the foundation and cornerstone and see where he directs you and how we? No, he interprets it. This is the will of God. It's available for you right here. And God's specific will for Paul Goodness, Paul couldn't write this story. It hadn't been God. Paul, a Jew, a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know who Jesus makes him an apostle to? Not Jews primarily. (laughs) To people who were once his enemies. Gentiles. Let's look back at that verse from Acts chapter 9. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the, say it, 
Gentiles, that is, everybody who's not a Jew, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, Paul's suffering. Writing this letter from prison in Rome. And who's he writing to? A primarily Gentile church in Ephesus. So who is this for? In Paul's case, for everyone. Especially everyone who doesn't look like him, act like him, talk like him, or even eat like him. That's our second point. Who is this for? He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul addresses them. Oh, to have a friend like Paul who addresses you as saints, faithful. You guys know how radical this is? Saints? Faithful? Holy ones? Hagias, that's what saints means, to be holy ones? Do we remember who the Ephesian people were? Do you remember the background from last week that Paul both reasoned sometimes in the Jewish synagogues to convert them to Christ, but mostly he reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus with Gentiles? And what does he call them? This church made up of mainly non-Jews, he calls them saints, holy ones. That is strictly a name reserved only for the Old Testament people of God. And now Paul, who's a Jew, is saying, you are now saints, set apart, holy ones of God. If this still isn't baffling to you, let me just make another picture for maybe you'll be amazed. Let Let me paint this uh, scene for you. Once you imagine, how many of y'all are in community groups? Raise your hand. Imagine your community group. We get a DeLorean. We go back to first century Ephesus, and you're sitting there in community group, and next to you is a former male Jewish rabbi, leader of the synagogue, and next to him is a former cult prostitute, and she's trying to disciple him that he can now eat pork. Two people who wouldn't be caught dead with one another in Ephesus. Two people who wouldn't ever be caught walking down the street with one another in Ephesus are now sitting there, one in Christ Jesus. Two people with completely different backgrounds, one in Christ. Two people with drastically different moral conditions, one in Christ. Two people of drastically different ethnicities, one in Christ. Fully saints, fully faithful. We're starting to grasp, grasp how radical it is for Paul to call them saints. How radical it is for Paul to call them faithful. Do you know that this would have been offensive and attractive to the watching world at the time? Because previously, 
It wasn't an individualistic society like it is today, where you get to choose your own religion, choose your own way. No, you were born into your religion. No one ever chose their gods or their faith. This meant that the people who shared your faith was a homogenous community. They were the same. Your ethnicity and your family determined your religion, but not Christianity. Christians believe that there was one true God, not just for some people, but all people. Christians believe that their faith in Christ was not only independent of their politics, their race, their ethnicity, their culture and family, but it was more fundamental than all of those combined. That faith in Christ gave you such a bond with other people that it superseded all other types of relationships in your life. It gave them you a new perspective and a new vision for this new multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic community that Richard Bauckham says was offered nowhere else in no other religion ever. This is why it's revolutionary when Paul calls non-Jews saints and he calls them faithful. And it has nothing to do with their moral condition, but has everything to do that their sins were forgiven in Christ alone. Do you see what the gospel of Jesus Christ does? It puts both the religious and the irreligious on the exact same playing field. Both fully sinful in their identity, in their sins in Adam, but even more fully forgiven in their faith in Christ. And this union they have as saints. Saints means set-apart ones, holy ones, and faithful, that is, believers in Christ. Y'all, this is not me language. This is we language. When he says grace to you, it's not an individual you. It's yins, grace to y'all. What Paul is saying here is that your union with Christ impacts your unity with one another. There's no longer me language. It's we language. And we in Pittsburgh love using we language, don't we? We won! Oh, y'all love saying we won. It's always perplexed me a little bit. That y'all say, we won when the Stillers win or the Pens win. Not so much the Buckos for obvious reasons. Don't say it as much then. But I always wonder, when you say we won, do you mean that you put on a jersey, poured a bowl of Doritos, and turned on ESPN? Yeah. You're basically saying, my identity, when I say we, is rooted in what someone else has done for me. My identity is not dependent on what I do that day, but I'm taking credit for someone else's success. You're staking your identity, your joy, your mood that day based on whether or not that team won or lost. And I think that that desire is within us is because we know we want to live for something more than just me, don't we? 
Well, how much deeper does that we language go that instead of putting on the black and yellow on game day is when we put on the blood-stained robes of righteousness in Christ Jesus? That Jew and Gentile are now saints in Christ Jesus. Male and female joined as one in Christ Jesus. Marrieds and singles seen as one and have worth in Christ Jesus. Your boss and the employees are seen as one in Christ Jesus. Those who are morally bankrupt and those who feel morally superior are now one, saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, that all ethnicities, all tribes, all languages are united not because of me, but because of Christ. Is this how... We view each other. One. Is this how you primarily see one another in this room? Because the reality is we have two homes. Do you see what Paul's saying here? That they have a temporal home and an eternal home. Do you see it in verse 2? In Ephesus, temporary home. In Christ, eternal home. See, problems arise when we flip the script of which gets the priority. When our temporal home takes priority and precedent in our lives, then we forget about our eternal home. To be a saint in Ephesus is to look completely different than Ephesus, set apart. Why? Because our faith is in Christ. Our eternal reality affects our temporary reality. Here's what Paul wants to ground in you. Your life, my life, is not bound by where we are today. It's bound where Christ is today and will be forever your heavenly reality is what motivates your earthly reality if your earthly reality begins to motivate your heavenly reality you're going to look like your neighbors around you you won't be set apart you'll blend right in our identity he's saying is in christ not a me identity we identity That motivates how we live here in Pittsburgh. Listen to me. When Paul says saints in Ephesus, I'm saying saints in Pittsburgh. Look at me. Your identity is not based on how well you live for Christ here in Pittsburgh. Your identity is based on how Christ has already performed for you on your behalf. Listen to me. You are not your failures from this past week. God sees you as faithful because you are in Christ. You are not your sins from last week or last night or this morning. You are seen as a saint in Christ. You are not what your job says about you or your lack of job says about you. You are Christ's workmanship, 
created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand for you. You're not how you failed in your role this week, whether it's a roommate, a parent, or a spouse. That's not what defines you. What defines you is the role that Jesus has played for you on your behalf. You are a saint. You are faithful. That is the truest thing about you, even though it might not feel like it's the truest thing about you. Your failures, your sins don't disqualify you from enjoying this identity. They actually qualify you to begin enjoying this identity. You begin to enjoy it when you recognize you don't deserve it. Oh, how could he lavish this grace upon me? How can he lavish this peace upon me? You see these two wonderful gifts, grace and peace to you. Do you see those two words there? They're never reversed in the Bible. Because we'll never experience peace with God unless we first understand the grace of God. The extent to which you Experience God's peace depends on the extent to which you enjoy his grace. Because this is what happens when you forget about the grace that defines you. You will have turmoil in your souls because you keep trying to work and earn that identity of faithful and saint. When you forget this grace, you will live lives of anxious, performative Christianity that tries to return to the law that only keeps revealing your imperfections. When you've already been forgiven in Christ. When you already have the assurance that it is finished. You don't have to work for your salvation anymore. Listen to how Jared Wilson puts this in his book, Gospel Wakefulness. He says, if the measure of your perfection is the measure of your assurance, you will always be a timid, fearful Christian. But if you measure, your measure of assurance is the perfection of Jesus Christ, you are ripe for gospel wakefulness. What or who assures you that you are loved by God? If it's your works, you're going to be teetering. If it's Jesus' works, you have a firm foundation. You see, the question here, and this is a two-sided question. Let's go to the first question first. Is, is this how you primarily view yourself? What is the main word that defines you? If I were just to give you 10 seconds of silence, what word comes to mind that defines you from this past week? If that word is anything but saint, Beloved, faithful, 
It's evidence that you need more of God's grace right now. You don't have to work for those identities. You don't have to earn those identities. And this grace that you get to enjoy not only brings you peace with God, but it enables you to live at peace with one another. I mean, could you imagine what this church would look like? What sweet aromas of grace would arise from this community if saints in Pittsburgh would, would actually believe that we don't have to achieve this reality, but we receive it? We don't actually have to work for this grace, but we work from this grace. And this is the second question I have for you this morning. When you view others, others who are brothers and sisters in Christ, what is the main way you describe them? If it's anything other than faithful and saints in Christ Jesus, you need more of this grace. You need more of this peace. I mean, do we require others to work to get back into our good graces? Do we require others to earn a peaceful relationship with us? Or we are so overcome by God's grace and peace in our life that we freely offer it to others. That we will stick our necks out for others. For that is what Christ has done for us when he chose to love us to his death. Oh, to not just have a friend like Paul in our life, but to be a friend like Paul who extends grace and peace that is the lens by which he views all other people in his life. Even Gentiles. Is this how you view others who call themselves Christians that might have different political views, schooling views, career choices than you? Because when you believe to believe, when you begin to believe that it's by sheer grace that Christ has won this peace for you with God, you'll begin to base all of your relationships off of grace and not works. Begin to base all of your relationships off the mercy of God and not how well others treat you. Do you hear me? You begin to see yourself primarily and most importantly as a saint. You begin to see others in the same way. That you are one because you have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one spirit in Christ Jesus. You see, what would cause a group of radically different people, different ethnicities, different moral backgrounds, to say, I identify with you? What would cause Paul, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisees of Pharisees, to identify and extend grace and peace to a bunch of people who were not like him, Gentiles, former cult prostitutes, former idol makers, people who don't look like him, act like him, or talk like him, what would cause him to say, I now identify with all of you? It's because Paul met the one who chose to identify first with him. 
so that he might have peace with God. Peace in the Bible is not this warm, fuzzy feeling that we get when we're in the presence of God. No, peace is warfare terminology. It's warfare terminology because we, in our sin, the Apostle Paul tells us, have waged war against a holy God and desired to set up our own kingdom and our own laws apart from his own holy kingdom and his own holy laws. We, in our own self-centeredness, we even start to set up our own laws that we require others to fulfill in order for them to get into our good graces, in order for them to be in our own relationship. And just like any law does, not, our, not just our man-made laws, but even God's holy law, they work as an x-ray. Because how well do you even keep your own laws, let alone the law of God, to love him with your whole being, to love others as he has loved you. We have committed treason against the holy king. See, our primary identity, Paul's primary identity, apart from Christ Jesus, is not saint, but sinner. Our primary identity, apart from Christ Jesus, is not holy, but unholy. It's not friend, but foe. And God being holy, the God that is set apart from the rest of us, he's nothing like us. Who is like our God? Had every right to wipe us out, but instead of destroying us, he puts himself on the hook for our moral treason. That Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father, says, I'm coming to earth to take on your identity so that by faith and trusting in me, you can take on my identity. You see, on the cross of Christ, Jesus bore our curse for not loving God and loving others well. He says, I'm taking on your identity of unfaithfulness so that by faith you can have my identity of faithful. I'm taking on your identity of unholy so that you can take my identity as the holy ones. I'm taking the just wrath willingly for you in your place so that you can have love from God the Father. You can have acceptance. You can have an identity that is not bound by a temporary reality, but by an eternal reality. This is now our new identity, that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see what we've done or who we are this past week. He sees Jesus he sees you as being faithful and as sense. And it's we, not just me. We are saints now in Pittsburgh, in Christ Jesus. Not because of the work that we do, because of the work of Jesus has done. We are now considered faithful because Jesus was faithful in our place. Oh, church, I pray that this wouldn't just be a theological reality for you. But this would be a practical reality for you. That when you interact with each other, what this looks like is a church that loves each other like Jesus has loved us. 
And how has he loved us? Better than we deserve. That when we talk about one another, whether it's to our faces or behind their backs, you don't gossip or slander. But we honor them with words of affirmation. For what else do we have from the Father in heaven but words of affirmation because of what Jesus has done? That we as a church, we don't let differences divide us. We don't let differences divide us. We don't let differences divide us. But we enjoy that diversity because of our unity in Christ Jesus. Do you hear me, church? Oh, what it, would it be if we were a church who not just received this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ. But we become a community that extends this grace and this peace to others. I tell you what we'd look like. All of Pittsburgh would know that we are Jesus' disciples because of the way that we love one another with his grace and his peace. Amen? Oh, so easy to forget this. So easy to forget that this is what's supposed to mark us as a church.